grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, it's Jo Sparrow here. Today's guest is an adoptee born at Crown Street Women's Hospital in Sydney in 1953. Jill Roger is a tenacious amateur detective who managed to track down her mother in 1984, years before New South Wales legislation was amended to allow access to identifying information and even before the common use of the internet and social media. More recently, Jill has managed to track down her paternal family through a DNA test with a beautiful outcome. Jill joins us today from Ballarat in Victoria, where she now resides. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Jill, and I am so happy to have you join me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jo. It's um, been absolutely wonderful finding your podcast. Um, I just did a search on the internet adoption and I came up with Jigsaw Queensland Adopt Perspective and I started at the beginning and I've listened to just about up to date and just learnt so much, just enjoyed them so much. And, oh, that's um, fantastic. Hearing different perspectives and reminding me of some things but just um everyone that's spoken has been it's been joyful to hear people yeah so and it's a, a fantastic podcast series that you've got and thank oh, you thank you yeah yeah I've, I've shared your um link with many f- friends and even yesterday at the RSL after the Anzac service, I was telling a lady that I was adopted. She said, oh, I'm adopted. And then she told me her story and, you know, yeah. And I told her about your podcast to listen to. There's a lot of us out there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Jill, I thought we might start um, this morning by just asking you if you could share um, with us what you know about your birth and subsequent adoption. Well, I think uh, I know I was very fortunate to be born um, in 1953. Um, My mother, okay, I'll go back. I was born in December 1953, Crown Street Women's Hospital. I was adopted out at three weeks of age to a lovely couple in Sydney, and they're my mum and dad. And um, when I was 10, I was inadvertently told I was adopted by a family member. They, they didn't mean to. It just happened, you know, as things do. Secrets aren't very good, actually, are they? No. And um, so I asked mum and she said I was chosen, as was my sister. And then it turns out there'd been another little girl uh, at that in between 14 late 40s and 53, a mother could reclaim a child. 
And some some mothers knew that and others didn't. So they had adopted another little girl and had her reclaimed. And then they got me. <laughs> and um, so I knew where I was born and mum and dad said they knew nothing. Um, they, it was done through the Department of Community Services, which was called um, under the Child Welfare Act of New South Wales. And... Um, I had a lovely childhood. <laughs> I had a lovely childhood, and um, but I I wanted to know more. Um, whoever matched us up didn't do a very good matching up because when I found out later, my birth mother's family were all fair and tall. Um, my adopted family were dark and short, and Mum was four foot eleven, and I was you know five foot seven when I grew up well, 15, 16, and fair and blue eyes, and mum had brown eyes. So they didn't sort of match us up. So I never actually felt part of mum and dad's family. My sister and I were similar, both blonde, but, yeah. So I'd always been wanting to know more. <laughs> All that questions that we have that no one could answer. Yes. What was it like for you growing up adopted once, once you knew? Um, I always felt different and I could always see girlfriends that looked like their mother and they had similar personalities and they had a, a closer bond, um, which as, she, as I became a mother, I was aware of that bond between a mother and a child. Um, so I had a good adoption, a really good adoption. Um, so in that way, the Child Welfare Department did the right thing. They were lovely people, but they were a lot older, so they weren't the young with it parents, but lovely. And um, my sister and I really didn't ever talk about adoption. She wasn't interested and she still isn't, and that's a bit of a, a thorn in her side that I and out there talking about adoption all the time. Um, just being adopted, I felt different. Um, unwanted, which was stupid because I was wanted, you know, um, but I couldn't connect the dots with anybody. So I felt that I didn't have a good identity. And even though I was gregarious on, on the cusp of Sagittarius and Capricorn, I was also inwardly very um, distressed, um, which I, I wrote a lot. Um, and putting down on paper how you feel is very therapeutic. And mm. I also played up, um, I was a naughty girl and mum and dad were quiet, gentle country folk and I was not the same as them. <laughs> 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 so you know and I would throw it back at my parents well anyway I'm adopted I'm not yours so you can't tell me what to do and stuff like that yeah. which is really mean really mean but it was indicative of how I felt yeah I didn't belong in their family so, um yeah I mean back when you and I were adopted we thought at the time we would never be able to find our biological parents because we were not going to be told their names ever um and I know for myself that was 
it almost drove me insane. Like from the earliest of ages, I wanted to know who they were, you know, who my parents yes. were and I wanted yeah. to find them. And the thought that I couldn't was maddening. I'm just wondering, particularly when we find out a little bit more later about, you know, what eventuated with you doing your sleuth work, were you really driven by that too? Like was that a strong force for you as a child? Yes, yeah, definitely. I, I just I used to look at people in the street and on the buses and I wanted to connect and I wanted to know my name my, my and my mother's name. I don't know about you, but I wasn't particularly looking for my father. I was mm. looking for my mother. Yeah, I, I think quite I'd, common. Yeah, yeah. Um, the father came into it later on, but I assumed once I found my mother, I'd be told my father's name. Yeah. And the mother was uh, the given. She's the one that gave us birth, so, whereas the father could have been anybody from different circumstances. So, yeah. yeah. So I spent all my time going against the law of New South Wales at the time looking for my father, yes. for my mother. Thank you, pardon. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and that's sort of what my story was that led me into trying to find out before social media and um, access was open, trying to find out who sh where I came from. And the first port of call was Crown Street Women's Hospital, or mm. it was called the, the, the Women's Hospital Crown Street officially. So Before you I, start telling us about that search, yeah. Jill, can I just ask what ended up sparking you to make that start looking? Like was there something uh, in particular that sparked it? Um, yes, my lovely mum died a week before my 21st. Yeah. And so suddenly I, and then dad died four years later. So suddenly I was, I called myself an orphan. Yeah. And no one had any information. So that that really got at me mm. and, um, yes, yeah. so that was in 1974 yeah. and I started fairly soon after but not, not 100% of the time because I was working full-time and life was there and then we were moving to um, Melbourne in, or Victoria in eight, 1981 so 1981 was a pretty traumatic year, Joe. Um, mm. We all have those years, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and um, my second son was born in May 81. My brother-in-law died suddenly in August 81. My father died. Oh, it was a few years. It wasn't four years. My dad died in September 81. And we moved, my husband at the time had a mental breakdown or a health mental health issue and we moved to Melbourne to work with family at the end of 81. So I realised in 81 that I needed to get my together really quickly and made an appointment at the hospital to see the social worker. The um, Crown Street Women's Hospital had closed and all the records had gone to the Royal Women's Hospital in Paddington in Sydney. So I went there. Um, my lovely mother-in-law came with me and my two, my baby and older son, and um, the social worker could give me certain information. And she was the one that actually told me my birth mother's first and second name. 
no surname. And she also said that the family came from the greater district of Sydney and it wasn't on the side of Sydney I was born. It was the other side, <laughs> you know, with the harbour in the middle there. Mm. Um, she had her, my file sitting opposite me on the little table and she walked out of the room to go to the bathroom and I'd been brought up a good little girl even though I played up and was cheeky and all that and I could not open the file and my mother-in-law was sitting with me of course she was brought up as a good Christian lady and wouldn't dare just be disrespectful to somebody and um, so all my paperwork was sitting there and I've heard this on your podcast other people have had their files sitting in front of them and haven't been able to open them so that was a waste of a lot of years but the social worker was a wonderful support and um, she suggested contacting the child welfare department and applying for whatever I could get, which was, as you're well aware, uh, lots of non-identifying information. No names, but descriptions and numbers of children in family, um, their working history, how old my father and mother were, um, no medical history, of course, everything's fine, just fine. No one ever has any medical history, you know. Um, so I received all that. But for the younger listeners, we had to wait by snail mail, which probably takes six to eight weeks to get a reply to anything. So it just sort of kept getting drawn out. Um, so every... I've, had two letters from the department and they gave me little snippets which I then went to the Mitchell Library in Melbourne at night and looked through microfilms looking I knew her first two names and I eliminated just eliminated 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 and um, my pile of paperwork just grew and grew the State Library were fabulous. They, at that stage, they allowed me to go and sit with white gloves and look through the old newspapers and look for births and everything um, and the electoral rolls. Um, I looked through the SANS directory. I don't know if they had that in Queensland, but that was a, a source of information as well. Went through lots of microfilms looking for those two names with a large family in that half of Sydney sort of it narrowed it down to a specific area, the, the a race course. There's three race courses in Sydney. So I was looking in those districts. Um, hundreds and hundreds of hours and dollars as well, you know, spent mm -hmm. trying to get information. And um yeah, so that, that was sort of how I started and I just continued on. And most of the time I was just on edge because I'd be so excited I'd find something and it wasn't. Uh, so the social worker was allowed to say yes or no. So if I rung up and said, oh, was it um, Gladys Smith? No. Is it Gladys O'Brien? No. So she had the name, but I had to find it. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a game, wasn't it? It was just yeah. a game. They just couldn't tell us anything. So um, I did a time 
line and I actually did a death search on on her. Not that I knew her surname, but the um, Department of Community Services, New South Wales, I could apply for a death search and they did it on my behalf. It cost so much dollars or pounds probably, <laughs> no mm. dollars. And, um, and if she was dead, I would have been able to get my birth certificate. So that was pretty harrowing because I wanted her to be alive, not dead. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, the legislation changed in 91, thank goodness for everyone that's looking, but I really was just like a, a dog with a bone and I tried to talk to everybody about adoption, hoping that somebody would know mum and dad's friends or, you know, um, neighbours, but nobody knew anything. And so it was just on me and I had support, but I did the hard work and probably wasted years of my life. Well, not wasted, but spent years of my life looking for my family, my, you know, inheritance as in characteristics of me and medical history and why she gave me away, why why wasn't wanted. But in actual fact, I probably was wanted, but the circumstances at the time um, didn't allow her to, to keep me. So she gave actually the same information to the department and to the hospital down to a T. So she knew all that information about my father and she gave a lot about her family. So, it, you know, it's just elimination to be an adoptee and to try to look for information. You've just got to be bloody persistent, <laughs> really do. And um, Absolutely. Yes. And now and, um, we do have access to so much more in the internet and social media, which has really changed oh. the game. Um, you still have to be tenacious and, and oh, definitely. you know, there's yes. a lot of setbacks sometimes. Yeah. So you did find um, your mother. Can you tell us about your experience of reunion? I'm all trembly. Oh. <laughs> it's... Um, it was 1981 that I met with the social worker in November. We moved south and it was December 1983 that I had a list of four families, possibles, that all sort of had the same number of children, were in the same area, worked in the same industry, which was with the race horses. Um, there was also people with those names, her first name, and I thought, well, the second name, maybe it was not correct or, you know. So anyway, so I ring up the social worker and she said, no, 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 no. And then um, on the 30th of December 1983, I rang her. I was in, we were in Sydney for holidays with the family and I rang her and she said, 100% correct, you have the right family. And, you know, I was ringing from a telephone box, which we had with no mobile phones, and um, the social worker just said, you're 100% correct, go for it. 
So I had the address and I gleaned all this through the electoral rolls, which were invaluable. And you can follow them right through. Australia's history is, you know, or documentation is quite good, really. Um, and so I went to that address in Sydney and um, looking for my roots. And I found roots, all right, roots of big old trees going into this massive big hole in the ground two weeks before they had demolished the big two-storey house and we're going to build a block of 10-storey units. Oh, no. Um, well. What a setback. <laughs> unbelievable. I just burst into tears at that stage and um, thought, well, I don't know where to go from here. And, um, of course, I knew the family no name, but I didn't know she'd married and had a different surname. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went knocking on the door of the house next door and the people, the lady and the husband said, uh, no, speak English. And I said, did Gladys live there? Yes. And shut the door. Great. And I thought, oh, wow, I've only got now. So I went to the house on the other side of the big hole and I um, just said I was doing family history and was Sarah Gladys that lived next door. And they were really lovely and said, yes, 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 she moved just around the corner. I don't know that part of Sydney at all. I don't know what corner. They didn't have an address or a phone number. And they said, ah, but one of her sons works around the other corner, you know, um, and he told me where he worked and I didn't know what his name was, so that wasn't much help. But um, I did. Shit, they must. They must have told me her married name. They must have because I don't know how else I would have found that out. And um, so I went to his work. Nervous as hell. Um, I break out in a rash when I'm nervous. So and it was summer in Sydney, and I I was just bright red all over my neck and my face and everything. And put my sunnies on, went up to the office and said, could I speak to Mr. S? And um, she said, oh, yeah. And she named, gave me his first name and said, yeah, he's upstairs. Just go upstairs. I thought, no, can't do that. <laughs> um, and asked for him to come down. So he came down, looked at me and didn't tweak that I looked like our mother, but I knew 100% that he was my brother. Didn't know first full, full brother or half brother, but I knew he was my brother. And um, he said that in answer to my question, for, I was doing the family tree, he said, oh, you just another nut off the tree. Um, yeah, yeah, she may or may not want to talk to you. She's not really into family trees. Um, she's away. Here's a number. You can give her a ring in a few days, see if she's home. And I gave him my number, but I think he tore that up straight away. He's, he's black or white. And um, we were coming back to Melbourne and it was, um, I knew she was going to be away a few days. That was the 30th of December. So I was sitting at my mother and father-in-law's and in, in, my, in that period, the phones were the big black heavy ones with the black windy cord and you had to dial the metal 
circle with the number yep. and, you know, hold on to this heavy thing and your ear would burn and your arm would ache because she kept redialing the number all the time. And I had my little spiel. I wrote out on the paper what I was going to say because I knew I'd be nervous. And um, on the 4th of January, she answered the phone. And um, I read the little spiel, January the 3rd, January 3rd, 1984. I read the spiel and said, um, my name was Jill and I'm doing family history and I believe that we're related and told her my birthday and asked if and where I was born and did that mean something to her? And she said, no, no, no. And I said, well, I, I had confirmation that it, that um, she was my mother, I thought, well, I've got to go for broke because you don't know if you'll get a second chance. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, no, doesn't mean anything. And she was going to hang up. And I said, please, you know, and I probably just dissolved and cried and blurted out and everything and, you know, told her quickly that both of my parents had died and I'd been looking for her for so long and I really wanted to meet her. And and, um, she said, take me as you find me, you can come and see me. And I said, well, what about now? And she said, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll meet. And that was, you know, that was it. And um, so I left my in-laws and drove over the Sydney Harbour Bridge by myself. I just needed to do it by myself without my husband or children. And um, walked up and she lived in a housing commission flat, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, it was clean. She had a bad trigger <laughs> and she opened her door and it was like looking in the mirror and seeing myself 29 years later. It was very, very similar physical um, shape, hands, everything. And she was pleasant, but she wasn't warm. Didn't ask me many questions, accepted that I'd found her. Um didn't really want to talk about the past, um, but happy, happy in a way. She's a people was a people person. Happy in a way to know that I was okay, and that there were other people that she could meet because of me. <laughs> and um, I said, "Well, my in-laws are happy. Would love to come over for lunch with us, you know." And she okay, so. She drove across the Sydney Harbour Bridge with me to their house and, and met them all. And, um, that you know, we went on from there. It was, it was joyful, but also I had so many questions and she wasn't going to answer them. And it, it took, it was like pulling teeth. Over many years, that was 84 it was 1994, 10 years later, I still didn't really know much. I had, I was, she said, I think the word is ghosted me. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, I met my brother, that one in 84 or 83. He had lunch with her every day of the working week and she wouldn't tell him who Jill was for 10 years. So, you know, um, 
I used to ring up and he'd be there and he'd say, who's Jill? And she'd give him the standard ads and none of your bloody business. Um, yeah. And I did, she did give me little snippets inadvertently and this is where you've got to write everything down and listen hard um, that I had another half-brother, so two half-brothers and he was in the Air Force. And she did by accident, and I think I'm sure not intentionally, told me what part of Australia he was in the Air Force. And I suddenly became a detective finding out where that Air Force was and how I could get in touch and broke all the rules and contacted him, you know. Um, so that it, it was a very, very difficult um, reunion as such. I looked mm. like her, but I wasn't like her. Yeah. My, and um, genetics, as we, you know and the others, readers and listeners know, genetics is important, but it's your environment and your choices in life that make you who you are. And my children and I share similarities of her characteristics, but overall I'm probably... And saddened that she didn't want a relationship. And um, someone would ask her in the early days, I must admit, um, how many children she had, like my in-laws families, oh, how many children have you? Because they didn't know. And she'd just say, two sons, and I'm there in front of her. Um, but that was a mindset too. Like when you rang me up the other day and I answered my previous name before I got married a few months ago, and it was the first time I actually answered the phone like that. So it's a behavioural pattern you've got to learn too. So, um, oops, so um, what am I doing? Send to voicemail. I've just got an interruption there. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Um, so the, the reunion was, it was, I want to ride across the sky when I was driving back for the last time across the Sydney Hub Bridge, I wanted to write, I found my mother. All the answers are going to be revealed. You know, I know who she is. Now I'm going to find my father and brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles. But reality is sort of not like that. Mm. You might find some members that are open and want to know you and then reality is that, your expectations or mine have always been too high and I'm aware of that <laughs> but that's me too yeah so I think in at, overall she was happy to know me and when she passed on Joe and my brother who doesn't have any doesn't want anything of hers he gave me boxes of photos and all the family history going back into the 1840s when the family were, came out as convicts and that. And in amongst one of the photo albums, it, just randomly, all the photos I sent her of myself and my children over the years. And on one of the big envelopes with all the family certificates in it, on the free front, she's got itemised. So she was a historian and a collector of all this information and um, medals, which we had yesterday, and I know who they belong to. On the corner, diagonal corner, 
It says Joyce, which was my birth name, 21-12-1953. And that blew me away that, that she actually had some recognition and had saved my photos but didn't, didn't include me in her world. Um, my husband and I would send her a check, as you did in those days, to, to get a TAA or an ANSAT flight to Melbourne, and she'd send it back. And, she, and then she'd say, nobody loves me. And we're saying, but we want you to be grandmother to the kids and, you know, Jill's mother and that. So it was bittersweet. And I, I, I really need to focus on the positives that she actually saw me um, she would never tell me my father's name. And over the last period of time, I've come to accept it was more than likely because of shame. Um, and, yes, we all do block out things in our lives that are hurtful from the past. And, you know, that's come to, to my life recently. Somebody said something and I totally can't remember that situation. Um, but when I asked her repeatedly over, well, it was 80, 84 until she died in 2015, so a long time that we, we wrote letters, we saw each other when I was in Sydney, um, and I'd say, um, please tell me my father's name, especially when I was having our third son. I didn't want to call our third son my birth father's name in case he had abused her or been a relative or, you know, I didn't want to hurt her. That was just me. And she just said it was a name that I would never in a million years use. And I wrote that down and that's actually turned out to be the situation. Um, and she also said it's none of your bloody business. And she said that several times to my eyes and with a very drawn mouth and a very severe face. And when my brother that had lunch with her every day asked her, she'd say the same. And one day he just yelled at her, just tell Jill why you're not telling her her father's name. Just tell her why. No, no. So she went to her grave without disclosing to me. But she, she was the youngest of nine. And her older sister was 20 years older and I actually found her. She lived around the, corner, around the corner from my husband and I. We actually found where she was and went to see her a few months before she died. And um, she did know all about Gladys having a child at the hospital and giving her up. And my age, brother was eight years older than me. Christmas, he was taken in to see me in the hospital, nursed me. Mum came home without the baby. The 13-year-old nephew that was raised by Gladys also, um, he went into hospital at the same time, nursed this little girl, little chubby girl, and um, he, he never knew what happened to me until I found him um, early 2000, um, 2010. No, about 2004 I found him in Canberra. And he just raced to where I was at the airport to meet me. He was so excited because he could remember nursing me as a baby and his auntie going home without the baby. Yeah. So um, 
sorry, getting interrupted here. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I've lost the question now, Joe. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's so heartbreaking. And you're right, bittersweet is the word that comes to my mind when I think about it. But I also love that you've been able to um, create some relationships with siblings and and cousins there. And sometimes, sometimes they're the easier relationships because there there isn't that thing that sits between us that sits between sometimes with our parents. Mm. Um, but I was just wondering, like your search for your father was a more recent experience. So there's a lot of time gone past um, <laughs> since you found Gladys to when you started to do that search. So I was I just wondering if you can tell us a bit about that, like, you know, what spurred you to move ahead with it and how did it go? So there was non-identifying information, as I said. In May 2001, so 21 years ago, I, I started looking for him, for my father. Um, again, the same process, elimination, elimination, elimination. Um, I had a presumption of paternity done. So I, I found all these things, you know, like death searches and all these different words that I'd never come across before. Um, when you say another, a presumption of paternity done, what do you mean by that? That was through the um, Child Welfare Department. So they could see whether on the court records through the Supreme Court whether a father's name had been registered or entered in anything. Mm -hmm. So, again, time, snail milk, costs and all that. And there was no father's name. And then... Some one of Gladys's brothers gave me a hook. He said, I think your father was so-and-so that drunk at the pub around the corner, up the corner. And he told me why. They were good mates and that. And so I, ma I matched up everything, like the number of children, the, the hotels and all sorts of things, but lots of similarities. And um, so I actually have a huge file on this man and his family like spookily I was sleuthing this family that turned out it wasn't mine <laughs> um, and then I started a genealogy class down here in Ballarat and um, decided I would get my DNA done and through through the ancestry I was able to connect to somebody who was a descendant or a relative of this man. And she was so excited that I'd contacted her. And we had a wonderful email connection and everything. And um, she encouraged me to get the DNA done to prove that that was who it was. And I, we were both so distraught when it turned out I'm not related at all to that family. <laughs> so it was a long time coming. Um, so I, that's wise because I really believe that that man was my father and he was deceased in 1957, which would have made sense that he wasn't part of her life, you know, later on. But um, that's why it took so long. So in November 2019, we're in 22, aren't we, 21, November 2020, I... I I received my DNA results and they showed quite clearly the family line of my mother 
which I knew her father and mother. So I knew grandparents on her mm-hmm. mother's side and it showed quite clearly grandparents on my father's side, quite clearly. And there was connections. Um, there was a half-sister who's, and there was also cousins. Yeah. Anyway, so it re- I had to suddenly get involved in learning about how to read the program and what to do and send out lots of messages to people and people didn't get back to me. So you, you get up, you're excited, then you're sad. And But I did find the family and... I'm happy that I I did. Um, He's long deceased. Um, And I've last, just this year, I've met a half-sister who will be 92 next month. 92. It's amazing. I'm 68. And I've also met, there's another half-brother who's still alive and he's 88 and there was a, another illegitimate, which is a word that we don't use so much now, another illegitimate child to this gentleman, gentleman, this man, in 1927. Well, his daughter is 50 and she's as bad as me as a dog with a bone and we connected from day one. Oh, not day one. I sent out message in March to her. So I had to sit with things. I actually also had a, a major operation on my spinal cord in December. So, you know, a bit of recovery time. So it was this March that I met my biological niece. And but we talk just about every day. And um, we've met my half-sister who's 92. So I grew up as one of two, and now I discover I'm one of nine. Wow. The others have deceased. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? It is incredible. Isn't so it? My, my life was the bones were that were mum and dad and my sister and I, and that was my basket of life. And then I filled in a few more stakes. I'm a, I'm a basket maker at Natural Fibers. So I filled in a few more stakes. There was uh, a birth mother. There was two half-brothers. And so it was sort of balanced. And now it's really all, it's more become a random basket instead of a melon basket because there's suddenly all these other brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles. I've got an auntie still alive at 96 yeah. in Melbourne. Nobody, none of my family lived in Melbourne. And suddenly I've got a cousin, three cousins in Melbourne. Two don't want to know me. And that's, as you've had discussed on the podcast, some people are interested and others, they just do their test and don't want to know anybody. Um, But out of that, last year we met my first cousin who's, her mother and my father were brother and sister. And we met in at the State Library, coincidentally, and she sat opposite and said, you are so much like your father. And even today I'm going goosebumpy. Yeah. Um, I'd never been told I look like anybody. 
and um, over the last nine months I've got photos and if I showed you a photo you'd say oh yes that's your father you know and um, she actually married my husband and I on the 30th of December just oh, gone yeah. and how special was that to have my first cousin actually marry us yeah so um, and I had been in touch with several other cousins on my father's side they were nice over the phone but then don't want a relationship their lives are full they're not interested yeah you know um so I have an extended family on both sides I have cousins on my mother's side too but um and a couple of those have nice relationships and all those little pieces are sort of filling in the randomness of my basket because they all tell different stories, they all have different perspectives, mm-hmm. some not so good. So you really have to sift and sort what you hear. Um, and my perspective has changed with different people saying different things about my birth mother and the circumstances of my conception and my birth father. And we'll never really know what happened and and that I've I've got absolute proof of my medical history, which is so important. Um, that's that's probably been one of the main things because I was asthmatic and Gladys said no, my family were all healthy. Okay, they were fine. And then and I have glaucoma and they said it's likely to be hereditary. No, Gladys family didn't have glaucoma. When I met my cousin last July and I said, well, I've got glaucoma. She said, oh, all the family have glaucoma. But the, the <laughs> you yeah. know. And also by learning that medical history, that's important for my children uh, because you, you can be aware of glaucoma and do something about it and manage yeah. it from a young person's age instead of getting to 80 and losing your sight. Mm-hmm. So that's been a real positive. So this, my, my story is colourful in lots of ways. It's had lots of joyful moments. It's had a lot of heartbreak. Um, expectations been met sometimes, not, not always. I've had to be persistent. And even now I'm still doing the stories, reading about my grandparents and and. That's really interesting because that makes up who I am as well. Yeah. And I see a lot of features of my grandparents in myself and my children. So, you know, it's connecting the dots. The dots. Um, it's, it's tough being adopted, but, gee, I was lucky and hopefully most people were that, you know, um, but it is a – was – has it always, it's always been my lifelong desire to find my family, even though I had my adoptive family and I still have my sister. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to hurt her. I've been so public, but this is me. This is who I am. I speak to everyone about adoption. I've helped people with find their families. And, you know, if I can give hope to others, to keep looking, don't let any stone be unturned. Yeah. And, yeah, 
sometimes like with people with dementia, which my brother now has, um, you can't ask a direct question, but you can give it thought or bring bring that question into a sentence and leave them with it and let them tell you something about it later on. So being direct didn't get me anywhere with Gladys, but maybe if I'd gone around it a, a softer way, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Hindsight, hey? Oh, I, I yes. loved how you um, equated it to like, you know, analogy, analogy of a woven basket because I often yeah. think art has so much to teach us in in life and even our connection to it. And and you have used, you know, all of these different strands to to weave a basket and, oh. and it's holding all of the information that you found. But at, oh, that's beautiful. We're, we're actually looking at a, um, a basket a, a, that just A melon made. basket. Made, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And but, so you, know, you have baskets, the framework. Yeah. yeah. But if you were to pour water into a basket, you know, it's going to leak. Like the water is going to go through unless you put something in there to seal it. And that's like adoption. Like it shifts. Things shift and change and and you can't contain everything the way we might like to control it sometimes. No. But, yeah. No. But you just got to be um, persistent and, and hope and... Like I never knew the laws were going to change in New South Wales, but how exciting they did and in the other states and birth certificates now in New South Wales have more information available. And you do have to just keep listening to podcasts, like your podcast about adoption, researching what you can do, pick everyone else's brains and and follow their leads like, okay, I've got to contact the department that's relevant to adoption or where I was adopted or, you know, and mm-hmm. um, you just kind of start at the beginning and just keep on following the different leads and just not ever give up really because it's been worthwhile for me. You just have to live long enough for it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's lots of emotions that go through in those years and um but finding your roots finding my roots to me my story has been so important and now that I've got my father's family on my tree as well some of them want to know me which is lovely others don't which is sad but maybe in 10 years they might change their mind or something you know um but so I've sort of got to focus on really on the the good parts of it all and, um, you know, having fish and chips with Gladys and going for picnics with my family and her and and girlfriends and that, those memories are lovely. Yeah. And, um, yeah, (laughs) it's been quite a journey Um, and I have written quite a bit about it, um, and just the other day, I, uh, the other week, I applied to the post-adoption resource centre in Sydney, which I had been dealing with for the last 20, 30 years. And would you believe I got a copy of my whole file of all my letters that I sent to them, plus all their counselling notes. And that was a bit in my face. Um, there was a few things I'd forgotten about. I chose to forget about, <laughs> um, but it was really good because it told my story that from that period of time. Yeah. So that was another avenue. It shows the evolution of us, doesn't it? 
Oh, and listening yeah. to your podcasts and reading other people's stories and the books that are recommended and uh, um, and it's wonderful to hear adoptive fathers, mm -hmm. their perspective as well. So, it, you know, I've always sort of adoptees and their mothers, but I'm becoming more enlightened with the father's involvement in the, the communication, the stories and the yeah. conferences and that. I think that's wonderful. It is. Yeah. yeah. Look, Jill, wow. thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I could talk to you all day about it. Um, I've, I've just loved hearing about your tenacity, your doggedness with it, um, how you've taken other people's feelings into account, but also honoured your own and what you needed as well, which is really important. We can't always be putting other people first, but we can always take into consideration, you know, their needs as well. And yes. I think you've done a beautiful job of doing all those things. So I, I know that your so. story will help others. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have a, a chat. Um, hopefully it wasn't too much of a rant. No, it, was, it was wonderful. <laughs> but, You're a great um, storyteller. Yeah, and if there's anything I can do to help others, I'm more than happy to because that's how we learn and we, we need to keep on talking. Yeah. Yeah, and listening, of course, yeah, and sharing. Yeah. Well, thank you and thank you to our listeners for joining us. Um, and meanwhile, if you have you, a story that you'd like to share with us then and you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and just complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.